This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Annie Grace. Thank you for having me. We were just chatting about the fact that you are in a hotel room with, with your fourth birth this, this week, did you say? This week. Well, over the last six, six days now, yes. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So you, you're a doula. Yes. I mean, I, I'm actually a midwife, but it, because I did my training in Switzerland, I can't work here as a midwife. So, yes. Okay, so you're doing the doula work. I've had doulas and midwives with all of my children, and they've all okay. been- yeah, really, really great experiences. Like I just really, um, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with like Ina Mae Gaskin. And oh, Iris. yes, absolutely. When I yeah. was in my late 20s and just decided, you know what, and, and I was born at home and my brothers were born at home with midwives. And so I was like, you know what, I want to just go that route and not That's have any, you know, any, um, I mean, obviously, if, if something were to happen, I wasn't opposed or anything. I want to be, be open-minded, but I wanted to have, you know, no interventions, no medication. And so the and three I'm done. And <laughs> you was- had that, um, that perfect, that story, that family story. It was like a, almost like a mindset, have, knowing that your mom, they look, you know, yeah. had you at home, that it really helps. Yeah. yeah. And it was a really helpful thought, like through through the you know most intense parts of it just like two two helpful thoughts actually and we'll get into your story but i just think this is interesting because it always comes down to our thoughts and our perspective right what makes things exactly exactly the two most helpful thoughts for me during the most intensive all of it my first my first baby was like 22 hours of labor three hours of pushing and then my second and third babies were very very quick almost born in the car quick yeah and um but they were more painful they were more intense in the in the in the rapid Uh nature Uh and the thoughts that kept me going were number one that you know for millennia we have not had hospitals and intervention and stuff Uh like that like this is not new for women and women are super strong and amazing and powerful. And then the other thought, and this was from my mom, she, she gave me this, this belief is like, there's nothing wrong. Like I'm not being hurt. Like my right. brain is telling me I'm being hurt, but I'm not being hurt. There's no danger here. And I understand mm-hmm. in some cases there, there actually is danger, but in labor pains, there isn't danger. Right. To the body, it is. It is feels like danger, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And so that really was grounding for me. Like, okay, this is just a feeling. I'm not being hurt. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I am being hurt as in pain, but my body, although it feels like it's being ripped apart, it's not. Right. It's, well, it's, and it, it's a bit like I don't need to do anything about this. This relief, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to take action because we always feel like this is wrong. I need to do something about yeah. it. And just like it's like you can let it be it's one breath at a time and just come back to that mantra mantra yeah, yeah. you so, don't need the action you can endure it it will mm-hmm. not kill you it, it won't yes. going to hurt you you're going to feel fine five minutes after yeah. and by the way it's happening anyway so yeah exactly. even if you were going to try to stop it you can't right. so you just have to get yeah. I, I deal, I work at hospitals mostly because that's kind of my background as a midwife. I used to be a hospital-based 
midwife, just because that's what 99% of all midwives do in Switzerland. We work with the doctors. So I have a really strong background in medical use and making decisions and just using with modern technology and bathtubs and water births and on and on. But my, my goal also beyond helping women have as natural birth as possible, then there are those who can't. And that's kind of become my specialty mission how can you walk away from a birth that is not easy and didn't just happen kumbaya, you know, with the Christmas lights and, you know, that, that story. Um, and how can you still move on and say, I want this birth, you know, it was my birth. It was good and I'm ready for parenthood. So beautiful. And the, the thing that I, you know, really did lose sight of through the whole thing is that the birth is so irrelevant to the life. I mean, it's not irrelevant. That, but it's so, like we make such a big deal out of doing it right, having the right things. And all of my babies were born in hospital. And so I really appreciated that from the kind of Western and mm-hmm. um, primal. Uh, but it was, it was amazing. And it's interesting that what we were just talking about in terms of the allowing it, enduring the feelings, realizing yeah. it kill you, I couldn't help thinking in my head, how similar is that to a craving, to riding kind of that? Oh, I, you have no idea how much I've thought about, especially since I quit drinking. It's been an explosion. I mean, of, you know, just, I thought about this because that's exactly what the hypnobirthing basically does. And um, that's what uh, all those, those, old men who came up with their methods, you know, the Bradley method and the breathing, that's basically what they did. Disassociate, take your brain, take it somewhere else, you know, shut down your entire left hemisphere and just be birth, allow it, you know. But since I quit drinking, I've thought so much about the whole fear tension, the amygdala, the stories that come in, the, the anticipation. And I've read several books right now. Um, and I have started calling myself, um, I stole this, I didn't come up with it, but the amygdala whisper, which I just love that word. But, and, and really, that's what it comes down to, to allow birth, to allow, I keep saying, this is you may be a marathon runner, which, by the way, doesn't really help in laboring because it just means you have a really, really tight pelvic floor and a really, really strong mind. That means your left hemisphere is probably super dominant. But giving birth is really allowing your body to do its thing, you know, and and I'm there kind of like the lighthouse, you know, as long as my light flashes green, you're safe and um and taking those anxiety hormones down a notch. As you say, there's nothing that needs to be done here. This is normal. Yeah, it's really amazing, the similarities. So let's talk about alcohol. Why don't you tell us your story? Why don't you back us all the way up to the beginning? I know, I'm so excited to talk about this because I don't have that many people I talk about. I mean, I have to package it so they don't think, what, you were an alcoholic? Or... It, because I just think, no, let me explain this. But I really, I grew up in Switzerland. So alcohol in the culture I grew up in wasn't much of a, it wasn't even 
on my mind. There's no college, at least not in my environment, there was no college drinking culture. Switzerland drinks beer or wine, and I'm sure it has more morphed into cocktails, but it's not like the frat fraternity sorority drinking, getting drunk, blacking out. And I just wasn't interested. It, it, I mean, seriously, it wasn't even that I wasn't interested. I didn't even think about it. You know, I was an au pair when I was 17 in Florence to learn Italian, and they made their own wine, and they just poured me wine sometimes for lunch. It was probably the best wine you could ever have drank, but I thought, why am I so tired? You know, it was just, they didn't ask, there was no talking about it. So that was probably my first wine exposure, but there wasn't this, there was, yeah, I can't even describe it. It was just something I wasn't going to do. I got into climbing. I was super, I called it my heroin. You know, I was so high on life. That's the, I mean, I was high on climbing, on the excitement, on the mountains, on being outdoors. I felt like it was like being put in a bright spotlight and coming to life. And there was some drinking at the huts because people drink wine you know it's just what you do or you get to the summit and somebody has some hot cider tea what spiked and you'd have a swig and mostly my reaction was oh no I'm tired you know and I was I would always say I was one of those minds I somewhere it's long time ago read this great analogy of a refrigerator you close the door and the light doesn't go off that was me, you know, and, and which was great because it made me very curious and, you know, just changeable and interested and learning friendly. But for working as a midwife, I had a hard time with uh, night shifts and shift changes. I just couldn't turn my mind off. And that's sort of when I first discovered, wow, if I drink a glass of wine, I fall asleep. Wow, isn't that great? <laughs> but I didn't put two and two together that it could also, back then it didn't really give me a headache, you know, I wasn't as tuned in, but it really, wine wasn't part of my, I grew up in a, with parents, they really thought wine was, I mean, alcoholism was like the bottom of the worst. So I also had that internalized. And then I wanted to learn English. I came to the States in 86 and took a, I was 23, took an English class, took the TOEFL test of English as a foreign language course. I had met somebody in Guatemala the summer before and all these little sub stores. I was in love a lot. So that, that's kind of like the high you get from substance, right? And um. And I stayed with him at Stanford. He was an, uh, a resident and that wasn't going to work. But I went climbing and I met a friend from Switzerland and we were rock climbing in Joshua Tree. And they were, there was beer and it was just part of it. Everybody drank a little beer, but I never pursued or never looked at it. It's like, I'm going to get drunk. It was like the end of the day, you have a beer. And then I met my husband and he was a really big time old time big name climber. I didn't know that. He was, oh my God, he was my big love. He was amazing. He was the most beautiful climber you could have imagined, you know, deep, everything. I don't even know how we communicated. I'm a, you know, I mean, I, my English was pretty much 
four months old, but it worked. And, um, and he drank at times really heavily. I mean, heavily, you know, rum and Coke. This is from, he grew up in the 50s, 60s, big soloing, hard climb, you know, you name it, hard background of bad parenting, the typical 50s parenting uh, with some really physically abusive, abusive alcohol involved parenting. And so he, but I didn't put this all together. I didn't think, oh, red light, you know, somebody is coping with his emotions here in a pretty volatile way. I mean, never physically abusive, but just emotionally intense and clearly intensified with alcohol. But, and it, it upset me. But instead of saying, you know what, you better clean that up. He was 11 years older. And by the way, we're still married. Um, instead of telling him, hey, buddy, you know, what did I know? I was 23 and so over the moon, I thought I was going to die. Um, I just started experimenting a bit more, you know, a little more. And I mean, I never drank hard liquor but so much because it, it really, it, I felt like it takes too long to get the high and then it doesn't get out of your system. And I have, I react to valerian, you know, I mean, I'm practically, I can't take melatonin without having nightmares. You know, I mean, I, I have to go back to the list of side effects. It's like, yep, got that. And somehow I made it okay to feel not okay with wine because it slowly became a useful enough tool to dim the switch, my high energy. But it still was off and on. I started, we got married in 88 because I couldn't go back and forth. They, right. they wouldn't have let me back in the country. Kept working as midwife, kept going back and forth. So for about 13 years, we did the, you know, I will go back to Switzerland. I will come back here worked for three months a year as a midwife to make a little money. I started working as a mountain guide. It was a pretty awesome life. I mean, summing it, looking back, it was like, that was me, you know, now that I have a 20 year old daughter, but we climbed a lot. That was the thing. And it became pretty habitual that we would have a couple beers at night guiding. You know, when you come back, we guided some in South America and there's a lot of celebrating going on and, the guides drink a lot and, you know, in, in Argentina, the wine is amazing. That's when I first remember thinking, oh my God, that, you know, the air temperature, the after all that tension, the physical, like you're out for 18, 20 days, you summited a really high mountain, like Aconcagua or so. And, and it, you know, it was just this roller coaster and I never thought about what happens in my brain what happens with my body it was more I have to hold it together so much and then that's oh, wonderful and a little bit it was like late rebelling against my parents because oh they're so outdated you know oh, you know what did I do they know you know they're they got married so young and so and then I got pregnant on one of those guiding trips with my husband I climbed some big mountains when I was pregnant. Now I think, what was I thinking? I mean, just, you know, I was in shape. I was uh, acclimatized and, and then, of course, had to stop guiding. I also 
as soon as I knew I was pregnant, I quit drinking. I mean, that was, I hear that a lot. It wasn't an issue. It was like, oh, doesn't even taste good. Actually tasted horrible, which was great. Coffee, wine, the best wine in Argentina tasted like out of a tin can. So it was great. I felt good, adjusted to the idea of having a kid. It wasn't quite planned. My life wasn't, I didn't write a script from my life. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, It just kind of happened. And I had my daughter and I thought, you know, I got this. I got this, this whole having a kid thing. I mean, I, I was a midwife. I'm going to be so knowledgeable. I've worked in postpartum and it was hard. It was really hard. And maybe it's big. I mean, later my daughter said, mom, look at dad, you, what did you expect? You know, I'm intense. You guys are intense and she's probably right. So she was, they call it colicky. I call it intense. And I started relaxing with beer and wine as you know so many other stories and I it just became a daily thing it became a daily four five o'clock beer seven percent IPA Um, then half a bottle of wine then maybe two-thirds of a bottle at the end I'm I'm not a big person you know and then menopause hit and you just don't metabolize it and sleeping, waking up as you have described it, you know, the 2 a.m. other voice, why are you doing this? This is so not you. This is absolutely, this is the last time in the four o'clock, where's my beer? I mean, it was, it wasn't even questionable. And then I tried quitting and three years ago, that was two and a half months and then back. And it's like, why did I ever want to quit? How can anything that makes you so happy for a short time be wrong? And, but I just, then there was this one time I watched um, a TED talk by, it was, see, it was clearly 7 p.m. Maybe it was even 8 p.m. And my first thought was, I wouldn't have to do that because I would be drinking my wine, you know? And that was just some unconscious, like, how can they do that at eight? You know, I mean, who does anything at eight? And I thought, what has happened? You know, and my, yeah, that's the other good thing about menopause is you actually, become aware of your mortality you know i mean i knew we were all gonna die that the universe was not going to make an exception but you don't really know it you just you think oh no for me you know they will they will forget it and when you start changing hormones all of a sudden it's like my dad died suddenly and i'm gonna die i'm gonna be 60 in two years it's like, what? And that really helps looking at maybe I have 20, 30, if I'm lucky, you know, years. And what am I going to do with my life? Four o'clock beer, five o'clock wine, nice dinner, not remember. I mean, I remember, I was never, 
I wasn't fall down. I was the gray area drinker. Nobody ever thought, you know, Barbara, oh no, she's got it all. Um, I was just a, I called him my bubble wrap. Mm. It was my, nobody can ask me anything after 5 p.m. in my family. You know, like, this is my me time, which meant not care, not worrying. I don't know. It, the idea now, looking at it, what, why does one want to be oblivious? You know, mm. why does one want to not be present? But that's pretty much what it was. And then I looked at my life at thinking, I don't have that much time. I mean, I'm maybe two thirds through it. And if I do the math, if I start at 4.30, that's like five hours of my waking time that I'm not even there. Wow. That's you know? Crazy. Yeah. And, and then you think we all want to get old. Uh, I mean, I could also just do more living time now. You know, and, and, and not waste it because there's not much you do. And even if I don't, it's not like I write a book at 7 p.m. now. I'm not, you know, not being, oh, my God, now between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. I'm becoming the new, I don't know, Pulitzer Prize winning novel author. But I'm at least me. I show up. Um, actually that's something I say a lot now is like, I go to bed with myself and I wake up with myself. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, so anyhow, then it was, I'm trying to remember it was, oh, it was January 4th. We had a family dinner and they drink pretty heavily. I mean, I call it heavily compared to my family. It's just clear. You walk in, what do you want to drink? And it was a makeup Christmas dinner because I was at a birth on Christmas. And um, I had, you know, I got a, uh, my wine and my beer first. And my niece, who's 36, was drinking grape juice. And I said, why are you drinking grape juice? And she said, oh, we're taking a break from drinking. And they're pretty heavy drinkers. Uh, yeah, they said that the holidays, it was just too much. We have two little kids. And I thought, that is so cool. I want to be that. That's what I want to do. And then two weeks later, there was an article in the, and who would think that it really affects people, but there was an article in the Sunday time, Seattle Times, and it was a big article on sober bars and sober curious and how there's a movement. And I read it and I thought, oh, I want to be at that bar. I want to be that person. I was that person. You know, I remember me feeling good, feeling me versus checked out a bit. Just that, that one step removed to where I feel like my mind is actually not quite there. My mm -hmm. brain is there. My, it's like separating the two. So the next day, then I thought, I'm going to quit. Okay, I'm going to quit. I've thought that many times. And I went that night. There's a church down the street that had a sign, meditation. So that night I went there. It wasn't what I thought it was. I thought, okay, I'm not going here again. The next day, my husband... He must be tuned in and said, let's go to a bookstore just because. 
and we did and there was your book you know i was like you know walking around with that rod to find water what is it <laughs> that's, that's how i feel i was walking around the bookstore i wasn't even thinking alcohol because i've looked at those books and they didn't quite do it i've already read the what is it kick it kick alcohol for good or and it it just didn't quite take and then there you were and I sat down in the bookstore and I just knew this is it. And I came home and that's, and by the way, all I didn't do, even do the 30 day alcohol challenge. I just, as you said, I read your book, one or two chapters a day. I started reading and uh, listening to your podcasts sometime into it. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware it was a podcast at first. I was so focused on that. Oh, right. And then day four, I, Either I had a birth or a several meetings. I came home, started cooking, and cooking is a big, you know, how does, one of my lines was, how does anybody cook without wine? You know, um, like it's something to be proud of. And I said, okay, that was a nice try. That's not going to, you know, they gave it four days. Meh, you know, I want my beer. I opened my beer and had a few sips, and I thought, mm. Well, it doesn't taste right, but whatever. And then I opened my wine so I could breathe. And there's something, you know, about the color of the wine that you really have. Like, I think that's, now I know, that's my dopamine going, you know, when I see the right deep color of wine. Um, and I drank that beer and I just kept thinking, ugh. Then I didn't pour my wine and I sat down and I finished the beer, but I really didn't like the way it made me feel. And I thought, can this be, is this even possible? It's like, it's like woo-woo, right? It's like, and, and this is sort of what, what is it? Day four must be six chapters into your book. I wasn't done with it. And that was it. That was my last drink, January I mean, I basically January 19th. Yeah. And it's been life changing. And no, I have not started a blog or a podcast or written a book, but I, I feel like I have to take it somewhere. I am so passionate about this brain thing. As you are, I thought, now I get Annie Grace. She, she just got high on this realization that we are not just our brains, you know, and that's where the big problem lies that we can't, I'm starting to see there's a mind, there's something that comes out of a perfect equal, imperfect, nobody's perfect, a homostasis that is very subtle. And when we are healthy, there's something that can come to life. You know, like I call it a being or it's like the breath of the universe hits us in this homeostasis and out comes Barbara, Annie Grace, and it's magic. It's, it's where meaning comes into life because we're just optimizing our unique energy with, you wanna call it consciousness or being. But when I drink, I obliterate that and then my body is spending all this energy trying to recalibrate. And I'm not, I mean, after 
of what 25 years of continuous drinking even though i wasn't blackout drunk i was functioning fine i just felt off and tired and exhausted and i knew it, that was not me mm-hmm. so oh i have so much that i could tell you that has happened i don't know i don't know how much time i even have to but yeah we can keep going i wanted to say something about that what you were saying i mean so many people it's one of i think the most overlooked aspects to this shift is the awakening of your intuition and i get letters all the time about that and it feels you know i haven't talked about it a ton because i always like to really be able to say, okay, and then here's the study, here's the brain science, here's the thing. But I think what you just said actually articulated it really well is when your brain isn't spending so much of its energy and your Mm -hmm. mind and your body isn't spending so much of its energy trying to just fight off the toxin or just maintain homeostasis or just get back to normal and Mm -hmm. prep for what's next. You know, you do allow, like there's something to it where getting back in touch with like the inner voice. And I also think if you, if you consider um, the inner dialogue when you are both drinking more than you want and if you're taking a break less than you want at the same time, because by the way, the dialogue happens either way. So if you're taking a break, but you're really feeling like you're missing out and it wasn't by choice and you're doing it because you feel like you've been, you know, you have to do it because the consequences are too great. You have a huge inner dialogue every time alcohol presents itself, which is Mm -hmm. constantly. Equally, if you are drinking and you're really feeling as if you wish you were drinking less, you have a huge inner dialogue. And so I think just that noise, it's like your intuition, that little still small voice is trying to talk over all of that dialogue that's just Mm -hmm. happening about. It's it's what what really has helped me. So the steps for one, the underlying beliefs, that's an a great first, I mean, the great first step is to quit drinking. And then to maintain it is the underlying beliefs. And that's revolutionary. And then understanding that your body is trying to, is doing its thing. It doesn't necessarily do you much good when it comes to drugs, because it is wired to to want that because it isn't actually it wasn't designed for drugs. So I, I thought, wow, if I forage out in the woods and I find a couple cups, handfuls of blueberries, if this is a few hundred years ago when there was a food shortage or what, my dopamine goes up, I'm gonna remember anything, I'm euphoric, I wanna go back to that, right? And that's a good thing. So my brain just did a very good thing, it remembered where I found energy and, you know, substance. So now if I drink two glasses of wine, I just ingested what a bucket full of um, or more of blueberries and that's not healthy anymore. And it's, it's alcohol, you know, it has alcohol in it. And so, but my brain can't sort the two out. So it just does its thing. And for me, that was such a revelation. My body just, does what it's it's supposed to do that doesn't make it right right you know that doesn't mean so to learn to oh yeah you 
you felt euphoric. It's because all this was going on in your brain, you know, and now I think, oh, the GABA, you know, is increased, but then it drops and the glutamate is still high. That's why my heart is racing at 2 a.m. And it helps me not identify with it. It helped me go, it's just the body trying to cope with this onslaught of, of something that is, it's not supposed to have to deal with. Right. And just that helped me separate the two. And then, oh, I don't have to follow this impulse when it tells me, oh, you know, remember how good that felt? Well, yeah, but it also didn't make me feel good. Before, I, only, I believed that voice because I identified with it. I was entwined. I didn't even occur to me that that could be just my craving. Somehow, mm -hmm. even though I knew it was a craving, but I could not separate. Yeah. yeah. And that was a total freedom piece. Yeah, so good. And, and I think that, you know, there's two voices that we have. If we were to say, okay, well, what parts of the brain are they coming from? I think that the, the part that really wants the best for you and for your body is really coming from your neocortex, your prefrontal exactly. lobe. And then the part that wants the worst from you is coming for, it doesn't want the worst for you. It just wants survival. Mm -hmm. And it's coming from, you know, the lizard brain, the, the amygdala, from this very survival-based mechanism. But that part of the brain was never designed to interact with any of the agents that we have to kind of tickle it, right? And, and I mean, there's lots of studies on things like Facebook and Instagram and obviously like high fructose corn syrup. And oh, yeah. Yes gambling and pornography and all of these things that like our brains aren't, we didn't expect, we didn't evolve for our ability to create stuff that's going to tickle that want to, mm -hmm. um, but completely leave us at a disadvantage because the want to becomes far stronger than the liking. And so mm -hmm. you, you find yourself doing something that you feel desperate to do and you don't understand, but you don't even like anymore. Well, yeah, or such a short time or it's so not worth it. Right. But you're being overridden by the mechanics. The, the, yeah, the uh, mechanics. And then yeah. we get wrong, by the way. Then we say, oh, but no, normal people are fine. And then, but it's just certain people that have that. No, 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 that, that doesn't even make sense. It is not true. I mean, if they, they gave, there's so many studies on this, but they gave, you know, they get exposed rats to, to food that does the same thing in mm -hmm. the, like different types of, of food, highly saturated and a hundred percent of them eat until right destruction right like it's it's same yeah. with any addictive substance it's it's the same mechanism it's not that there's just some people who are more morally sound or or more able to and i think when we see that and when we release the shame and the guilt then we can awaken some compassion for oh okay brain you're just trying to keep me alive mm -hmm. you expect this and and thank goodness that if we're going to create all these things which we did by the way create you know even fermented vegetables back in the day or if blueberries went i'm sure that's how like alcohol was that. discovered yeah. that yeah. something started to rot it, it made <clears throat> us feel funny the percentage of alcohol 
so weak compared to what we're dealing with today. And, and that's true across the board for, for everything. You know, we, we just find ways to enhance and enhance and enhance. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I guess the, the good news about that is that like, it really does, we are kind of to a point where you saturate yourself with something and we do start to wake up. You know, it's almost like we have to go through the intensity. And I think it's happening younger and younger now, which is really cool too, in, in the sense that, you know, for, for you and I, like for me, it was more than a decade. You're saying more than 25 years. And because it was a slow burn, We're but so- now I think people are like just, especially I think, I think what's happened with, you know, when we were in quarantine and stuff, people were like, okay, well, just rails off guardrails off i'm just gonna drink all day long and very quickly within six eight eight weeks they're like oh this isn't doing what i thought it was gonna do this isn't feeling like i thought it was gonna feel and so they're really wanting to make a change so there is something to be said for just like the short the short steep way up the mountain instead of the long long circuit yeah it's just remembering who you were i mean who who that other you is Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that's a key component. Um, I read a book, I, you may have heard of him, um, Louis Casolino. Mm-hmm. He wrote Why Therapy Works, but he, it, 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 the subtitle is um, How to Change Our Brains with Our Minds. And he really separates, and that's where I had these aha. Uh-huh, he has another book, The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy. And he really goes into the neuroscience and uh, social brain. And I think it, it was another one of those wow books. Um, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I think I, I thought you might really like it and heavy on the neuroscience. But the other thing I was going to mention, I also have a now 20-year-old daughter. So simultaneously that I went through this quitting my wine habit, I call it retiring from my wine habit. I like that a lot. Um, And I just say, I'm done. I had two bottles, by the way, in my cupboard that I was given by, of course, right when I quit, two two clients gave me wine. And I put them symbolically in the cupboard underneath the sink for after five months, I told my husband, drink them. I'm done. I know I will not, you know, before I was like, yeah, but what? They may be really good bottles done. But my daughter was going through a pretty challenging time, post-competitive climbing, readjusting, you know, the competitive mind is also very far from the true self. And, and just trying to find out who she was, which came with a lot of challenges and being in a competitive national level sport you deal with body image and the idea of having to be look having to look like a 13 year old forever and hating yourself if you don't and depriving yourself so that was a motivator why i read so much of the psychotherapy brain thing because she got into a controlling food and you know breakthrough controlling and she was at a loss like why is this happening she's the most self-disciplined person who just could not have you know stop that and and that correlated with the drinking so much you know and with the quitting and and it 
just spurred me on to read and listen. And there's a podcast called Brain Over Binge that is really good. They have really good pieces of, um, maybe you, were you on that? Maybe not. I don't think so. But, uh, but it's, it's, it, it's just total crossover. And their approach really is you're not your brain. You know, you are a mind that can actually slowly separate from a brain. And they use this image of the sky being you, the mind, but moods and cravings are like weather that moves through the sky. You don't have to identify with each storm that goes through. And, and that I think was a really good nugget in there for my daughter, but it helped me. And by the way, I still listen to your podcasts constantly. I, I think I've pretty much listened to going backwards, almost everything for the psychology of it. And the way you do it, you have so little ego in it. That's, oh, I mean, you just, there's so many podcasts out there. There's so much just filling the space with words that I have very little tolerance for. So you don't bring yourself in, in this, you know, you don't claim, except when you have something important to say. So. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that feedback. It's always so good because I do. I look at the download numbers and we just hit 7 million and I'm like, oh my gosh, who are these people that are listening and what do they think? I, I don't know. There isn't necessarily like a huge feedback loop. So I sometimes just feel like I'm just talking to, you know, when I'm doing those solo ones, just talking to my little green light on my computer. And yep. then, of course, I enjoy this much more doing the stories because it's fascinating and so fun. It's, it's, the stories are really helpful because when you listen to a story from not your side, but from the other side, it does trigger your own thinking. And I think, oh, I, that's exactly how I felt. Or that was different from me, for me. You know, I didn't go that route. I was more that other. By the way, I think I'm the perfect proof that even that anybody can get addicted because I am, I've, no family. I mean, just so not that person. I love my level head. I love being clear. I love that spiritual connection to everything. And I got totally, I hate using those right. words, but I, it, yeah, it, it, I just got habituated. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. So, but it helps me then in my own mind goes like, yeah, just like that. And then how would I frame it? And it sparks more thought. That's why people probably keep listening, even if they're long done drinking. Um, because yeah, it's inspiring. Well, it's a gift you being here to share your story as well, because it does take guts. And I just really appreciate it. I have two more questions for you, Barbara. Okay. Um, how does your husband feel about all of this? Well, he, of course, at first thought, yeah, it's one of her, he, is, he was always supportive. He always said, uh, you know, I don't want to, do you want me to leave the room when he has his beer? And we both drank similar, he always had maybe one more beer and then same amount of wine, but he could at parties definitely go way higher than I could. Um, but he probably thought at the beginning, yeah, we've tried this before, right? He was supportive and then I just kept doing it. And what he is saying now is just, I am so impressed. 
Oh. And I keep saying, you don't need to be impressed. I'm just thankful. I'm just grateful. I'm not even proud. I mean, this is not about being proud. This is more like, oh my God, somebody opened the door for me. That's what it's more like. And then it's like, well, this is crystal clear. And he has now gone down to two beers a night. And that's pretty much it. Even though he has no intention to quit completely. But I think it's been good for both of us. Neither did my husband. So. Uh, and yeah. Eventually, very naturally. He just kind of stopped. Yeah. You oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. He was, he told me, he was like, I'm never going to stop. Just so you yeah. know, it's not my thing. It's your thing. Yeah. Like, that's fine. It's totally fine. It's not for you. So it was really good. But that's awesome. By an, um, a neighbor, just because I tell everyone what, because we get together. I have very little patience for parties now, unless it's personal, you know, because what do you do with a whole bunch of, yeah. Um, but we had a wonderful evening with the neighbors, women, just women together, my daughter. And, and I said, yeah, quit. I feel great. And just a few days ago, I got a text from my next door neighbor. She has two young children. She said, I stop. I'm trying to quit again. Five days ago, I can't stop thinking about what you said about feeling like you again. And who was the author <laughs> that you mentioned? So I, I sent her all the links. And then I have another friend who I mentioned your program to, and she's a counselor. And I just saw her hiking. And she said, by the way, I have two clients who quit with the Annie Grace program. Oh, so Great. Yeah, ripple. I love it. It's amazing. Yes. Yep. So let me ask you the question that I always end on, which is if you were going to go back in time and, you know, talk to Barbara, who felt like she was basically checking out a bit from 5 to 10 p.m., um, what would you tell her about what life is like now? Well, I would say don't forget who you, I mean, or don't forget or remember who you were before that person is still there, that that energy is not gone. You're not, this is not a natural progression. You don't have to just like the angle of repose, you know, settle in at the bottom of the hill and go, it's just getting, you know, you are still in there and you will come to life. You, you know, try it, give it a try because it is there waiting for you. Oh, I love that. It's amazing. I mean, that, yeah. That's so great. Um, thank you so much. And, and good luck with all of your many, this must be the full moon or what? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I will have an, a clear October. So that's... Just Are we nine months. months from quarantine right now? Is that possible? What's going on? Or no? mm, not quite yet. No. That will be interesting too, right? Yeah. <laughs> quarantine babies. Yes. Or maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, it's so lovely talking. Yes. I mean, who knows? I may look into your program to become a coach or something. Be wonderful. You have a great presence and such a great way to tell a story and connect. So yeah, I, I'm pretty passionate about it. So beautiful. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Barbara. You have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. 
Hey, it's Annie Grace. I want to tell you about the most important book that I never wrote. And I mean that. This is This Naked Life. It's 48 true stories of people finding freedom from alcohol. And it's so inspiring. It's our stories, as you know from this podcast, that truly change us, that revolutionize what we believe is possible for ourselves. So it's This Naked Life. You can find it on Amazon or check it out online. Even download it 100% free at nakedlifestories.com. And every single copy that you buy, all the proceeds are 100% committed to keeping the alcohol experiment forever free for anybody who needs it. So check it out. It's such an inspirational book. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.